Okay, yeah. welcome to another episode of PhD Vos. This is Zion Yao. And this is Liz Wayne. And today, we guys, we wanted to talk to you guys about something that happened in grad school that we really don't talk about because I think sometimes it feels like failure or it happens to so few people that it will never actually happen to you and therefore you don't really think about it. And that is um, the leave of absence mm-hmm. and all that entails. Yeah. So we want to talk about some of the circumstances that go towards leave of, leaves of absences, but also like taking the term leave of absence more broadly to talk about mm-hmm. mourning and death. Um, the impetus for this discussion is actually that just yesterday, um, my old cat back home uh, had to be put to sleep. Um, I've had her ever since I was little, like I was telling Liz all these stories, like she would wake me up for school when my alarm would go off, she'd come into my room purring and follow me to the bathroom and make sure that I was, you know, had myself together and Mm. she's just a, she was a big part of my life. Her name was Zelda after the video game and I thought that was really cute. Yeah. and she was like this wonderful, intelligent, bitchy, fiercely loyal cat <laughs> who had just so much personality. And she'd recognize my voice when we'd, I Skype with my family and she'd like try to look for me. She'd purr if like for strangers, like who couldn't read her, she'd they'd try to pet her because she was so beautiful. But then she'd purr and mm-hmm. then bite them um, <laughs> because, you know, she'd teach you a lesson that way. She'd do this thing at night, which I'd call like meowing for kittens, because when she was found by the, um, the Humane Society, she was a, a young cat that, that just had her kittens and they gave them away. But and then at night, basically every night, she sort of like would sing, as we call it, and bring around these pom poms that we say were her kittens. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's all the singing for her kittens. And she's a very small cat, but she had this really loud meow. So she'd be like, oh, oh, and she'd also <laughs> purr really loudly. She just had a ton of personality anyway. Like, she was so, she's almost 20 years old, and she was so energetic. Everyone thought that she's so much younger than she was, because she would just still be, like, jumping around and running Mm -hmm. around. Um, She just was always so lively, and just, like, just a couple days ago, um, suddenly my family noticed that things just changed so, so rapidly. Uh, And it was really devastating, and my partner, Teddy, was like, you know, maybe you should think about going, going back, and... Then, but I was, I was also like, well, I've just been doing so much traveling, but also I don't know if I'll be able to get back in time. And my, I'm glad that the night before my sister was able to let me webcam with her so I could see her. But obviously this brings a lot of things to the surface. Um, like what? Well, things about, again, we were talking about how academia makes you end up in so many different places, but like. This mm-hmm. is one of these examples where with something beloved, like it's not like I could travel back to Toronto in time with uh, to to see her. Like it's a seven, eight hour Greyhound bus ride. I wouldn't have probably been able to make it in time, not being able to spend enough time with her. But also for me, like uh, last year, my grandmother also passed away. And of course, because of my PhD program in the last couple of years she was getting really weak and I I couldn't see her as often as I'd want to because of course I had to be here to, to teach and to do work 
Yeah. yeah. And there's this way that I get, I think this is something we've talked about before, but with graduate school, we want, it's almost like we want time to stop because in some ways it feels like a suspended, uh, an arrested development because, you know, we feel like we're still in school when we see other friends who are like getting jobs and, and so forth. And so it seems like, you know, it's a continuation of school. And, but nonetheless, we see that things are changing around us. Like we could still, you know, have children and get married, whatever other sort of benchmarks of adulthood. But at the same time, like also our, our loved ones who are probably far away because that's the nature of graduate programs are, are growing old or getting sick and we can't be around them in the same way. And then how do we deal with it after, after the death? Like after my grandmother died, I was completely devastated. And I mean, I'm still affected by it. And I was very lucky that my committee was very understanding and, and just like, just take the time you need to get better. But, but it, not everyone gets that kind of support. Yeah, and I, I think it's, I find that quite often we, we know we're always grappling with things to say to people who are grieving, mm -hmm. but, but sometimes they can unintentionally be very hollow. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, I think when an advisor says, <clears throat> or a boss or whatever it may be, you know, take all the time you need, I always find that really challenging because, or hard to really decipher because people say take all the time you need and that's what they say, but what they mean is come back tomorrow <laughs> to work re-energized. I mean, that's really what the reality ends up being. Um, there's, there's, there seems to be a period of time where you can take your time, but if you take longer than they think you should be taking, it becomes challenging to navigate that space. And in reality, all the time you need, I mean, what does that really mean? Because all the time you need could actually be the rest of your life because you're true. dealing with that loss and you're learning how to start a new normal. What does it mean to not have Zelda with you? What does it mean mm -hmm. to not have your grandmother when they were staples of your life before and now they're not? I mean, those are questions that we deal with for the rest of our lives. They may not yeah. occupy the same volume of space as they do in the beginning, but they do take the rest of your life. So the idea of taking all the time you need is if if I spend two days of solidly, solidly thinking about something, the next two years, I don't have to worry about it. And that's not really how it works. But that's what people say. And in a way, that's actually what the culture expects of us to do. And I'd say there's something about, like, of course, we've talked a lot about how personal life in general sort of disrupts what's supposed to be like this normative timeline of... A graduate school but especially like the work of of mourning which is not mm -hmm. as you're describing a linear process it's not a finite process like really runs counter to the sort of productivity focused timelines of the mm -hmm. way we're supposed to think of academia now like you're supposed to produce publish or perish um do this by this time by this time these metrics these metrics and yet something like the work of mourning very much disrupts it because it doesn't operate according to that really easily quantified logic of productivity. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry, I was thinking about um, the actual term leave of absence because 
there are many reasons why someone may take a leave of absence. Um, but some of them, I mean, they ultimately come down to thinking, I need this time for myself to recoup, to mm-hmm. get a sense of, of things and to recalibrate before I go back into the graduate work or, or, or the classroom and I can devote more of my time to that. And it works for some people. And I don't know. I'm trying to think if it would have actually worked for me. Um, because I guess when my boyfriend died, I people were expecting me to take a leave of absence. Mm-hmm. But... And I think I, I got judged a lot for not taking a leave of absence, actually, because people kind of thought I wasn't grieving and they thought that I wasn't giving it enough attention, I guess. But for me, actually staying and trying to do the work was actually my way of staying healthy and um, staying in an environment. Well, not the environment. The environment sucked for me. But staying focused on something to actually help me move on or keep going. Whereas if you, if I had taken a leave of absence, I wouldn't know what to do with myself and I would have had too much time to think about or too much space to kind of fall off the tracks. Mm-hmm. But that was really, that was a personal situation. And that was, that was me thinking about what my options were, where I had to go and kind of realizing that I, I needed to stay where I was and not, go to something that was a very uncontrolled environment. And I don't know if I would be alive or healthy if I had um, taken a leave of absence. I think it's really, like, it's a real testimony to you that you're able to identify, like, what type of support you needed. And it becomes so difficult because on the one hand, like, obviously for some people, it's the right thing to take the leave of absence but then they could be shamed for taking it. But on the flip side, like with your case, like if you don't take it and you know what you need is not to take it, you could also be shamed. Like there's like, it's sort of a bind or people could be pressured into not mm-hmm. taking it because they're like, oh, you should just like work through it. And maybe they don't, don't, but it's like so individual that. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I ended up, I did take a break. It just wasn't one where I actually left my program. Mm -hmm. And I will say that that experience, like the idea of having people, um, people kind of upset if you do and upset if you don't, Mm -hmm. it taught me how to listen to myself and kind of understand what I needed because no one else was in that situation. So there's no way they can actually give me good advice on how to deal with it. And and it just really, um, I had to really practice not listening or ingesting all the information people were telling me. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what I do, you're gonna be, someone's gonna be upset or someone's gonna think something. I actually remember there were times where um, one of my coworkers, I think I said something about him and then they said, oh, I haven't heard you say his name in months. I didn't realize that you were, you felt that way. And I kind of just looked at them and just thought, like, how is it? So if I don't say his name, then that means I'm not in pain. You know, like, mm-hmm. 
it was just this weird kind of balance because it just never occurred to me that someone would think that that I if I'm not expressing something into them that I'm not feeling some way at all yeah I was gonna say that also what you're describing seems like this other weird intersection of the way that academia and grad school is also this type of performance where you get judged by others but then the sort of weird slippage that it's not just your professional life that gets judged it's also your personal becomes people try to look at it as being a signifier of what your worth is or anything Mm -hmm. like that because people are just grasped because there's I don't know and like people still trying to fit even like the personal into some framework of meritocracy to try and explain like oh is this person doing well or they're not doing well does explain this um know it's just it's weird you know i i want to say academia does this more than um non-academic positions but I, i i'm not fully sure but it really seems like in academia your personal life and your professional life get merged together in this way where mm-hmm. they actually don't even try to separate them and i think it's actually a great thing to to merge those lives Whereas, like, you may have some separation in a workplace. Like, when you go home, you can actually just go home. Mm -hmm. There are ways in which in academia, you don't just go home. Or, like, if you have to take your work home. And if you're not, you're being judged. And it also means is that if you have a personal life that you're not sharing with your colleagues or your boss, your your professor, your advisor, you can be um, ostracized in that way as well. Which makes it hard if you're struggling with something because, mm-hmm. you know, then they don't tell yeah. you. And I feel like there's this way that you're damned if you, uh, damned if you do and if you're, you're damned if you don't. And what I mean by that is, so if you're experiencing personal crises, death in a family, illness, and you don't, aren't able to recover according to the norms of what, like, your program timeline is, then, of course, it looks like it looks poorly upon mm-hmm. you. But if you do well, then it's like, oh, it didn't really matter. Like, it didn't affect you. You know what no, I mean? No, I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I do because, know what like, you mean. Because, like, 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 I've been very grateful that I've defended back in December. So that I think I was, like, just the second person in my cohort to defend. So I'm doing really great in terms of that timeline. But And so on a level of just quantifying according to, like, timelines and productivity, like, oh, look at look at Christine. She's, she's doing well. She must be on top of things mm-hmm. and but then my experience of it I've experienced a lot during this time mm-hmm. a, a lot of personal pain um, mourning a lot of my health has not been good it's always been an issue and that sort of becomes erased in this narrative of like oh I managed to defend by such and such a time like yes it is good but it doesn't erase the things that I've gone through or I've still been going through. Does that, does it make sense? Like there's yeah. some weird tension between. Uh, if you're successful, you can't be struggling that much. Yeah. And if you're struggling a lot, well, obviously you're not that successful. And there's yeah. also this and way like in which advisors kind of use that to judge and rank their students because mm. students that are problematic for them, they just kind of put them to the side and say, well, you know, that student has some issues. I don't want to deal with that student anymore. This student is not producing enough. 
and they're not focusing on the right things anymore. So they'll, they'll definitely start to try to make those assumptions based on your what they perceive as your your work ethic and your yeah. Like does it? It's like when bad things happen to you, like it's seen as productive adversity if you can overcome it in some legible mm-hmm. way. And then like, oh, look, they're even stronger. But if you can't, then it just be like weighs you down even more. And I think that um, I think maybe it's appropriate to bring up. I have a, quite a number of friends who are very much involved in the topic of mental health on campus. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's been a big thing at Cornell uh, because of the, the number of, of deaths that um, happened that received national attention. But I have a number of friends who work on the Council of, of Mental Health and Wellness. And so... They're working on many different levels, like how can we make this more compassionate and so forth. But one thing that was very difficult um, is when they're talking to administrators about how like mental health is such a huge problem for graduate students and often tied to advisor relationships. Mm-hmm. But like a survey that had once gone out, um, they pointed to was like, oh, 90% of grad students here are happy or are in their program and 90% are I'm not exactly sure if the exact figures are, you know, are happy with their time here and happy with their advisor. And is that a whole truth? And like, they wanted to say like, but we don't, we shouldn't focus on the negatives. We should focus on the happy things. But as a friend of mine critiqued very rightly is like, but if you do that, that further stigmatizes those people. But also sometimes I'm someone who responded to that survey. And I said that I was happy and that's true, but that had to be like this really active process and, by me saying that I'm happy in a particular moment doesn't, should not erase the difficulties that I've faced or anyone else mm-hmm. has faced in terms of their personal life, in terms of their physical and mental health. Like those, those things can exist side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And they get erased with that number or depending on who you asked, who they didn't ask, when they asked, um, or even like like the response rate. Will people who are in the, incredibly depressed like will they respond? Will they even be able to respond to it? Like maybe the response rate is also just you know geared towards those who had the energy in that moment, and because the per- that person felt like they had the energy to do it, like oh yeah, I'm comparatively happy that compared to how I might usually be or something like that, or you know might be some a wish to create a self fulfilling prophecy. If I believe I'm happy. Like, it becomes, like, the dark side of positive psychology. Like, maybe if I answer that I am happy, then I'll become happy. Because that's the sort of rhetoric of positive psychology. Yeah. That perhaps ends up masking a lot of negativity. You know, I really do think there should be a field of graduate school psychology. So, okay, mm-hmm. let me rephrase that. Because there's obviously a psychology department in the graduate school. I know, school, and we have but... friends in the psychology <laughs> department. But... but the psychology of grad students, rather. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, What's that syndrome where you start to love the people who were torturing you? Oh, Stockholm syndrome? I think graduation, there's a bit of Stockholm. There's a bit of... Oh, yeah. There's a lot of dynamics going on to where you can't just actually ask someone a question without taking into effect the the factors that go on that might make a student skew their answer. Power dynamics, right. definitely. The power, the funding dynamic, power, who's in your lab, um, the sort of self-help that you try to give to yourself. So even, so the PhD is something where you're in a situation and it doesn't change basically, the power dynamic rather doesn't change until you graduate. 
And so because you can't really change your situation, you try to start fixing yourself. You start saying, well, if I change, then I can make my situation better when when it could be a systemic issue that you're fighting against. Yes, yes. Or So just because, because I say comes... I'm going to be more optimistic doesn't actually mean the situation is different. It means I'm yes, trying to cope yes. with my situation, mm-hmm. my circumstances by trying to augment things that I can fix or change, which are, which is myself. Yeah, and like perhaps a, like again the sort of Stockholm syndrome where people have advisors who, at the very worst, are different forms of abusive or maybe negligence. Um, you have to develop coping strategies, mm-hmm. and just because you have a good coping strategy doesn't mean it's a healthy relationship. Right, right. So I, I there's a lot that goes into it, and um, if you if you ask them questions and don't try to find ways to um, negate those things, then you're not going to get the best answers. When people like to complain about their students, often they like to say like, oh, like one excuse, well, one like stereotypical excuse, which I've never received from a student is like the, oh, I have an ailing family member, usually like a grandparent, Mm -hmm. you know, and people like, and it's like something that I've seen a lot, like in the type of rhetoric that people use to like, Plain about like how terrible students are, or even in like professional. Right, there's a big article venues. about that from the, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, where they yeah. polled people, they polled um, professors, and asked them to kind of give their cheeky responses or, oh yeah, to oh, God. students who asked for extra time or things. Yeah, and the example being like if your grandmother died, and so, and that's often like oh my grandfather grandmother died, but I'm someone for whom my grandmother actually died. Mm-hmm. And it does actually happen. And so for me, it becomes a sort of little painful thing that this like, this trope is very real. And I think it's very real for a lot of other people as well. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah. <laughs> it be- has become the status of, of the butt of a joke. As if students aren't allowed to have personal lives. And we as academics are a little bit further along the system perhaps are, are mocking them because we too are trying to disavow that we have personal lives as if we don't have grandmothers that could die or that we can't work past that. Yeah. I got, I got, I was very fortunate. It's just horrible. It feels horrible to say that, but, um, so after, after, uh, my boyfriend passed away, I, was not a functioning human being and I did not work. I think I just, I just stopped going to class. I was actually taking graduate class classes and I stopped going to class and I, it was like a month later and I kind of like woke up or just thought like, I'm still enrolled in classes. (laughs) And so I actually remember going to um, one of my professors um, office hours. I scheduled a meeting with him and, um, Fortunately, there was someone else in my class who was my friend who had told him what was happening So, because he didn't mm-hmm. know why I stopped showing up to class. He was actually very, very understanding and helpful. So I thought I was going to try – I was going to try to make up um, the remainder of my classes. And uh, – but I, I did do – I didn't – I didn't – I couldn't work. I couldn't – I was helpless and the professor was really understanding and it was also a little scary because he was looking at, he just kept looking at me because he said he didn't recognize me hmm. because I, I mean, I, yeah, stuff, but 
that was hard. He, he, he said, I physically look so different that he actually didn't recognize me. And he was very understanding and very sympathetic. And that was really helpful for me personally. So one thing that's been really important for me since my grandmother's passed, um, I've like going, so one thing that's been also really hard is that like, since my grandmother passed, um, my grandparents had been living in the same house that they'd been living in since, I don't know, the Mm seventies when they moved to Toronto that my, my mother and my aunt and uncle grew up in. But since my grandmother passed, it made no sense for my grandfather to live there alone. So I had to pack up and move into a retirement home and sell all the things. And so there's a, there's a sort of this weird surrealism of this place that I'd always grown up in and saying goodbye to that place. But then it, Anyway, what I want to get to is, like, one of the things that I inherited, like, because there's so many things that, like, as you go through um, someone who's died's possessions, like, mm-hmm. what things do you keep and what things do you not keep? And it almost feels like a betrayal every time you say, like, well, I'm not going to keep this because it's not practical or, like, you know, yeah. this doesn't have any sentimental value. But because that person's gone, it's sort of like everything has sentimental value. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you have to measure somehow. Um, but one of the things that I got from my grandmother was this piece of jade a just jade necklace that she'd often wear. And so now it's become the sort of talisman for me when I've been going through all the anxieties of the job market that I'll try to wear it for the various things I'd have to do because I feel like she's there for me. But then there's also a lot of like other little things like like I have this winter jacket that she had in the last couple of years because my mom was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is grandma's. Do you want to take it? And I just went yes automatically because I was like, this is part of grandma. Like I have to take, take yeah. it. But I was like, do I really need this? And I was like, mm, but, you know, it's sort of like in the moment, you're just like, everything has the sentimental value. And what do you hold on to? What do you, what do you take away? Like something like the necklace, like translates really easily into like very normal forms of mourning. Cause like necklaces are like, you know, pieces of jewelry are small, portable. And they're like been traditionally part of like how you remember people, like probably yeah. going back to like Victorian forms of mourning where like people really were into like different types of mourning jewelry and that's convenient, but things like the extra winter jacket are, you know, not so, like, they're, because on the one hand they're so cumbersome, perhaps it helps to promote the work of mourning in other ways because it, like, it forces itself on you in ways that are uncomfortable, but at the same time it's also, like, this practical level that, like, yeah. how do I store this? I don't really need this other jacket. Yeah. Um, Actually, can I really a, get rid of this? This is a weird memory, um, but I'm okay telling it. I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever actually mentioned this before. Um, okay, so we were living together, um, deceased boyfriend, and I, some of our mutual friends came and helped me pack up his belongings to give back to his parents. And so I kind of let them do that, and I, I, didn't, I didn't have the energy to actually do it myself. So mm-hmm. I let them do it even though um, it would have been nice to be there because they like, they don't know what's his and what's mine. And at that Mm. point, like it's all merged or what I'd like to keep or things like that. Um, So all that stuff goes, but he had this um, like ritual, like he would sleep in my bed. So sometimes his clothes like go into like my dirty clothes. Like I have my own hamper, I guess Mm -hmm. like they would like, 
Um, oh, that yeah, this sounds weird. Maybe I'll cut this out, but I'll no, still no, tell like, you. No, 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 I, 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 have, <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you mean. Like, you end up, like, getting the other person's laundry, and then you, like, you, you wash their stuff. Right, and so, so here I am. It's, like, a month later or so, and I realized, like, I was kind of feeling sad about not having stuff. And then I realized that I have, like, this golden stash of his dirty clothes. And I know that sounds, <laughs> you know, like... Uh, in other circumstances, that might have sounded crazy, but I picked them up and I smelled them, mm-hmm. and it and then I got like super territorial over them, because one time, um, you know, people were trying to help me and they're like, "Oh, wash your clothes." I was like, "No, don't touch this." You know, it's like, "No, you can't have this. Don't touch them. Like, if you wash them, it's all gone. Like, the memories, everything is gone." And like, when I would smell them, it it was like an instant memory. Like, mm-hmm. of course, some of it was sweat. And it, like, you know, no one wants to smell sweat. But, but it was like, oh, this smells just like him. This is him. Oh, he's here. This is like, it smelled like him. And, um, and I actually remember realizing it was kind of pointless to keep sweaty clothes. <laughs> it was like, you know, like, it, there's nothing really from this, but I didn't want to wash them. And, and also, like, I knew once I washed them, like, then they really have no point because mm-hmm. no one's going to wear, you know, like, his undershirts and stuff like that, like, in his boxers. Like, no one's going to wear that. That's it has So it has no point, but I didn't want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So I kept – I put it in a bag, and, um, and I – what I remember is that, like, I, I've moved from time to time. I've moved a lot, and – I would, over time, forget that I even had this bag. So mm-hmm. as I'm doing, like, some household cleaning, I would see the bag. And um, and then I would start crying because, like, I wasn't prepared. It wasn't like I said, okay, today I'm going to go, like, remember that. And smell, in particular, is something that will really transport you back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in a way that even faster than pictures are yeah, moisted. Yeah. It's like, more smelling. Visceral. because it, And it smelled like him. And I haven't smelled that smell in so long. And, um, so actually that's even why I even made like a a box of things and they're really random, but I got tired of kind of breaking down every time I looked at something, like I tried to, let's say I'm trying to find something and then I, I don't find what I was looking for, but I find this, this thing that just kind of like makes me, incapacitates me in a way. Uh So Uh eventually I did throw the bag away, uh, probably two or three years later, Uh I finally got the strength to throw the bag away um but actually I won't say I'll say strength but it was also one of those things where I felt really guilty about it because every time I got rid of something that means that it's like more and more true and it's more and more yeah like something that's never coming back yeah even though I knew it was pointless even though I you know I have my memories and those are really more important but I held on to a bag of some dirty (laughs) boxers and shirts (laughs) and socks. I didn't smell the socks. Like I can deal without his socks. But, um, and I guess it helped that over the, over that time, I think I smelled them one more time before I got rid of them, but they were starting not to smell like the smell was going away. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I know that's a cop. I've, I've heard of people, keeping clothes or trying to sleep in mm-hmm. someone's clothes for a while before. And I, I put them in a bag. So, 
I can definitely understand the wanting to keep things and trying to figure out what to do with them. And Yeah, I understand the smell thing, yeah. too, because it's like my grandmother had a particular, um, like, she was, she was a very elegant lady, like, particular mm-hmm. perfumes that she'd always wear. And yet, it's like, again, like, such a, like, the way that the, the dead grandparent is sort of like this joke in in higher ed, like, the smell, grandmother smell is often a pejorative in, like, the fashion world, or, like, you know, the, the world of perfume, like, oh, well, it smells like my grandmother, or, like, oh, this product smells like my grandmother, and then it's like, actually, I like what my grandmother smelled like. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I actually have a perfume, like, this musk that reminds me of her, not that she necessarily smelled like that, but, like, when I was very little, she gave me this silk carnation and, like, sprayed some of her perfume in the center. And then I'd always smell it as a child. And it gave me, like, unrealistic expectations for what flowers should smell like. Because then when mm-hmm. I actually smelled flowers, I was like, <laughs> this doesn't smell as awesome as this, like, <laughs> fake flower with perfume in it. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I wear this perfume sometimes because it makes me feel, you know, loved. It brings me back to a certain time. Mm-hmm. I feel protected. Yeah. Yeah, I, it makes me think about the, the actual process of grief and mourning and really just how much of a fallacy it is that you can just take all the time you need and because it's a lifelong thing Mm -hmm. after that. And, and you, you learn how to, you make a new normal. And you have to move on from that. But in some ways you don't. Hmm. Or at least, you know, in some ways you don't ever really move on. Hmm. No, I'm I'm really thinking about it. Yeah. Because even then, maybe... I guess it would depend on what you mean by moving on. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I guess, like, life continues. But in moving on, it's not like you... Like, I guess there's something about the phrasing that almost seems like you're, like, walking along a road and, like, this thing happens and you, like, mo- literally, like, move on and, like, somehow leave it <laughs> behind you. But you yeah. don't. Like, you don't. It's not like you forget. But, like, life continues. But at the same time, like, you're still changed by it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the work of mourning is never truly finished. So maybe this is, like, a topic that we'll revisit sometime. Yeah. I hope that for those of you who have been listening that, you know, you're not alone. Whatever whatever you need to do to heal is, is just so much up to your individual circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that you've been able to get something out of this by listening. Yes. And if you learn anything or get anything from this, know that sharing is a great way to heal and to remember the people or pets or things that meant so much to you. Memories are important. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for remembering with us. Yeah, thank you. Take care. And on a brighter note, (laughs) you can find us, obviously, on Facebook (laughs) iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Twitter. Twitter. 
Yes. We are the PhD <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Oh my Bye. God.